Welcome back to another edition of the ASEP Equal Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Jason Woods. Today, we are going to be reviewing critical issues in the evaluation and management with patients with suspected NSTEMI. We're going to do that by discussing the most recent ASEP clinical policy regarding this. Our guests today are Dr. Christian Tomaszewski, who is a member of the ASEP Clinical Policies Writing Committee and was the leader of the writing group for this new policy. He's a professor of emergency medicine at UCSD. We're also going to have Dr. Michael Ross, who's an expert in emergency department chest pain observation and management and is a professor of emergency medicine at Emory. Dr. Tomaszewski, can you talk to us about how policies work and how they are different from guidelines? as well as give us an overview of what this policy addressed. And one definition I do want to throw out there ahead of time that got edited out after the fact is what 30-day MACE is. And MACE stands for Major Adverse Cardiovascular Event, and we generally talk about it as a 30-day mark. So after you're discharged from the emergency room, within 30 days, have you experienced one of these? Well, in a way, policies and guidelines are starting to become more and more the same in a way because of the National Guideline Clearinghouse is sort of gives us the rules and framework for every society to create these guidelines. We call ours policies at the American College of Emergency Physicians because in some ways they are more prescriptive. They're not more prescriptive in what they bind physicians in the emergency department into what they can and cannot do. Hopefully we give them permission to do the right thing based on evidence. But what we are very prescriptive of is on the design of the policy itself. I mean, this was a two-year labor of love, over a 1,000 papers we went through in a very organized fashion to make sure there were no biases. In fact, for me to be on the subcommittee, I had to have no financial nor any intellectual conflict of interest. When we get these over a 1,000 papers, what we do is we have our members look at them and individually grade them as to the robustness of the design and class of the data. For example, a randomized controlled trial would be a class one all the way to a case report would be a class three. And then independently, we grade these, look for any discrepancies, resolve those, and then they go on to our methodologists who go on to further grade those articles, extract the data, and give it a rating in terms of strength of evidence. It is a very robust way we go about that, and more and more policies are being done, and guidelines are being done that way. So then how did your committee go about tackling this policy? What was your strategy? We came up with four critical questions. Even these questions went out not only for membership comment, but expert comment and also public comment. So anyone that wanted to make a change in these questions before we went ahead forward with our literature search could make it. We also had a patient representative on our panel throughout the whole process, which is something unique and a lot of societies are starting to do, which not only brings up some unique challenges, but I think it brings up more opportunities, which was interesting. So the questions we came up with in order of presentation and the way a chest pain patient that you're worried about potential NSTEMI is you get this patient with chest pain, you quickly get an EKG and you go, well, there's no tombstones. They're not a STEMI. So I have some time. You know, I can wipe my brow. I can sit down and think. And the first question we go, okay, they don't have a STEMI. Can you look at the patient right now, get some quick labs, and make a decision, yay or nay, does this patient have a good chance or of not having a 30-day mace, even safe enough that you could predict a low rate that you could even discharge them? Once you've done your risk assessment of the patient, is there a way that if you keep them and you get a, a second troponin, 
is there a way to improve that low rate of 30-day MACE to make it even safer for you to discharge that patient? And sort of the standard has been at most EDs, three to four hours for repeat troponin with the contemporary. We wanted to see if you could push that time to less than three hours. So you've screened the patient, you got the initial troponin, you did a risk assessment, you got a second troponin, you ruled them out for a potential 30-day MACE, and you want to send them home. What do you do with them now? Do you have to do a, some kind of stress test or nuclear test? Do you have to do evaluate their coronaries further, maybe with a computed tomography and geography before they go to further reduce that, or is that, is that really value-added? And then the last question we threw in is that you do roll in an NSTEMI, their troponins do rise or they're high initially. In addition to aspirin and heparin, which at this time, because the literature is so old, we assume we're standard of care, do you have to do anything with the newer antiplatelet therapies that are available? Are you, is there a clock running that you have to deliver those in a timely fashion? Not to mention that you have other competing interests in caring for this patient and others and that these other newer antiplatelet therapies may actually have some downside in terms of bleeding. So these are all intended to be patient-centric, help the patient, but also help the physician do the right thing. When you're looking at MACE to show that you're reducing it at 30 days or to have some awareness of what that rate is, there has to be some sort of benchmark or goal, right? What's going to be your accessible 30-day MACE rate? And everybody would love medicine to be 100% right until people look at the medical bill for the proportion of GDP that we're spending on healthcare and realize that if we kept everyone with the slightest suspicion of potential for NSTEMI or MACE, we would easily fill up our hospitals with people waiting for serial troponins, maybe subsequent testing. It would get out of hand. Well, Jeff Klein did a really interesting paper in medical informatics looking at what would be the best test threshold? And this is a theoretical number at which you start accruing too many false positives, too much excessive, excessive testing, that you're actually performing a disservice for your patients. And he mathematically guesstimated, because it is, it is a guess, it's a you know, well-thought-out guess, that 2% is about the threshold, maybe 1.9%. That if we try to miss less than... 2%, 1.9%, we're going to slowly end up accruing more and more patients that don't need to be tested, and that you're going to end up getting, you're going to have to deal with more and more false positives. So getting back to our first question then, in adult patients without evidence of ST elevation, ACS, acute coronary system, we ruled it out with that initial EKG. Maybe we repeat another one in 15 to 20 minutes because we know full well sometimes the first EKG can miss it, especially that continued pain. Can we go to the patient's bedside and be better than Gestalt, do a rating system for risk stratification, and that can include an initial troponin, can we predict an acceptable low rate of 30-day MACE? And we came out with a pretty strong recommendation. For us, we rarely get level A recommendations, and that would be a high degree of certainty. We usually have a, some level Bs, and that's a strategy that would reflect moderate clinical certainty. And our level B recommendation in this case was that if there is no evidence of ST elevation, ACS, you can actually use the heart score, which looks at history, the EKG, the age, risk factors, and the troponin. Heart tends to perform pretty well 
across a wide range of patients and countries and diverse diversity. And we thought that it can be used as a clinical prediction instrument for risk stratification. A low score, three and under, would predict a miss rate of zero to 2%. The confidence interval, to be honest with you, go up to 3% in some of these articles, but they are running around our test threshold of 2%. And then we even came up with a follow-up with a level C recommendation with a scoring system that was used prior to the heart score, and that's the thrombolysis and myocardial infarction score, the TIMI score. You can go online and calculate these all easily. And we thought the TIMI score, a lot of the papers were done on TIMI score. If you have a TIMI of zero, you could also use that to predict a low rate of 30-day maze. Keeping in mind that to be a TIMI of zero, you got to have you got to have a pretty clean slate in terms of risk factors and age. We stuck to the ones, Timmy and Hart, that have the most data. And the problem with this, as we were writing this, papers were being churned out so much so that we had to go back and do another literature search. We had to repeat the literature search last year to make sure six months ago to include those articles. Anyway, how well do these tests perform? Timmy, looking at, at across the gamut of testing, went from 67 to 100% using contemporary troponins. You throw in high sensitivity, there's papers that go all the way from 98.4% to 100% sensitivity and not missing 30-day mace. That you're, you, know, you can assure yourself you're not going to miss a 30-day mace. The problem with that is specificity. If you're just age 65 and above, you're already above Timmy zero. You're a one. So it doesn't take much to bump you up. So yes, Timmy is very sensitive. Your sensitivity was only 8.5%. That is a, either a disaster or a godsend for somebody who happens to run a chest pain observation unit. If you go to heart, this one happened to look at two and lower, sensitivity drops, but your specificity increases. So when you take heart and TEMI on area and the curve analyses and try to compare them, heart tends to be more robust for better trade-off between sensitivity and specificity. I need to throw in an aside. Chris and Mike go on to talk at length about high-sensitivity troponin, but we have an entire podcast that we just published last week on that. So we're going to move on past that discussion for now, and if you want to hear more about high-sensitivity troponin, just go back in the feed and listen to the two that were published last week. I'll drop you right back in to Dr. Ross asking a question. So this makes a lot of sense, and it's really nicely into our next question, which is in adult patients with suspected acute non-ST elevation EQ coronary syndrome, can troponin testing within three hours of ED presentation be used to predict a low rate of 30-day MACE? So, Mike, that's good that you mentioned, should we throw in another troponin? How does that help you? The question is, when do you do that second troponin? Do you wait four, five, six hours like a lot of chest pain centers do? Or can we narrow that so we don't need to put people in observation units so we can get them out the door a little quicker? And what we found is our level C recommendation is that, yes, you can do a second troponin. And if you do it at zero and three hours and low-risk patients for a conventional troponin, we think that gives you an accessible low rate of 30-day maze. So if you're still doing four hours, we're giving you permission to do three hours. The second thing we looked at were the high-sensitivity troponins. Now, as you all know, I told you that the high-sensitivity troponin will pick up a positive test positive result will give you a detectable level in normal individuals, but it will be below the level what's considered abnormal. There's even a lower level, and that's called the level of detection. In other words, the test comes out with a zero because the troponin is so low, it's not picking up anything, usually below five to seven nanograms per liter. 
at that level, if you're totally negative, you're getting nothing. We think that it's safe if you're low risk, that the patient is at low risk for MACE. And if you have a high sensitivity and it's negative, it's detectable, but it's below the level it's considered abnormal, a zero and a two hour is acceptable. A zero hour arrival and two hours after arrival. And then finally, to cement that level C recommendation, we said, if their EKG looks good, their zero and two hour serial high sensitivities are below the abnormal level, you can discharge them because the rate of MACE is so low at this point, there is no point in keeping that patient here longer. So let's drill into some of the data. So the heart score, these studies, two studies, the Mailer study in 2015 and the MIDAS study in 2013, looked at the heart score. So these are low-risk patients, three or lower, with a negative conventional trope at zero and three hours. The first study had zero MACE missed, and the second study had only 1% MACE. So it really works. You can get away with three hours if you're still using conventional, which most EDs in the U.S. are doing. And I hope they, they this gives them permission to go. If they're doing four, six-hour rule-outs, they can go to three hours. Now, I know that previously the ACCHA guidelines said that if somebody was at risk but deemed to be okay to discharge, they needed some sort of provocative testing within 72 hours. Do you or the new policy have anything to say on that particular piece? So 72 hours suddenly becomes a physiological number. Where in physio, you know, I guess circadian rhythms are around 24 hours, so maybe I can buy 72 because that's three circadian rhythms, but that sounds to me more astrology than physiology. It has more to do with the Earth's rotation. So you're telling me that three rotations of the Earth make it safe for me to get somebody outpatient testing. You know what it coincides more is the weekend. If you have somebody on Friday, it gave physicians a permission to wait till Monday. So that's not really patient-centric. That's really a convenience factor. So that was kind of strange. But what we found is maybe you don't even need a 72-hour recommendation. You don't need any recommendation at all. Because what we found at a level B recommendation is that if the patient's low risk and their EKG is fine and they rule out with a low-risk troponin, or I mean with a high-sensitivity one, or if you're doing conventional zero and three hours, that further diagnostic testing, whether it be coronary CT, echo stress testing, myocardial perfusion imaging for the low-risk patient prior to discharge does not add value. It does not help reduce 30-day MACE. And there's more and more papers coming out with that. Even a recent paper that had thousands and thousands of patients looking at their experience, and nobody had 30-day MACE. At the last minute, and we may get grief for this, and there was a lot of dissension in the committee whether we should have a level recommendation on some kind of follow-up for these low-risk patients, that we should not just set them free to the wind and hope they do well, that at least to give us some peace of mind for that 1% to 2% that could get in trouble, that we have some kind of follow-up within two weeks. And that was a consensus recommendation because there really is no data to support that. There's data that says that, as I said, they, they could go for four weeks and not have any problems. So are there randomized controlled trials looking at subsequent testing of these low-risk patients. Yes, there was a limb study in 2013, and they looked at stress myocardial perfusion imaging on 30-day outcomes, no real difference. It was 0.4% versus 0.8%. The relative risk was not specifically different, and the absolute difference is immaterial to us, the 0.4% difference. And that was a class two study, so it had a lot of robustness. We had two class three studies, the Frisoli uh, 2017, the Pru 2013, they showed there was no MACE in that 30 days. 
and they had a good collection of patients. So replicated at two different sites. So that's why we came up with that re recommendation. And that's why some people were against the level C recommendation that they even need follow-up. That's very interesting. So are you saying that nobody needs a stress test? If you look at the Mahler paper, the randomized study, they decreased admission, but there's still, they decreased it by 40 to 60%. There's still a sizable group that stayed and had a stress test. It seems like you're taking it a step further. Are we saying that nobody, none of the lower chest pain patients that have had NSTEMI ruled out need stress testing? Our conclusion based on the data was that if you're low risk, let's say it's a heart score three or less or TIMI zero, and you're, if you're using conventional troponins, your serial troponins, or your zero and two hour high sensitivity tone come back negative, we thought it was safe to let your patient go, that you're not going to add a lot of value. You know, in, in emergency medicine, we, we try to really keep on proceeding with cutting edge information and incorporating innovations in medical technology, whether it's biomarkers or protocols. So this is really helping emergency physicians push the envelope. And it's a very different message than they got years ago when the ACCHA guidelines said that patients have to have stress testing within 72 hours of discharge. You're saying that that may not be the issue. Very interesting. We spent a lot of time focusing on diagnostic issues of identifying NSTEMI and then identifying people that may be at risk of 30-day MACE. But once we've diagnosed NSTEMI, how do we treat these people? For example, should patients receive immediate antiplatelet therapy? What do you think, Chris? All right. Sometimes in the emergency department, I feel like a clown. I have to juggle a million things, and then they come and ask me to do one more thing, and I got three balls in the air. I can juggle three balls pretty well. You know, I did go to college in Santa Barbara, so I had a lot of free time. But throwing a fourth one in there is just too much. And being responsible for getting antiplatelet therapy onto a patient after you've made sure they're stable, you talk to the family, you talk to the consultant, you get the heparin on board, you make sure they got their aspirin, and they're getting pain-free, and you look at the repeat EKG. A lot of consultants ask us, hey, just throw in uh, a clopidogrel in there for me. You know, why don't you hang on some presser grill? You know, use an adenosine diphosphate-induced platelet hydration inhibitor or a glycoprotein inhibitor. And if they're asking us to do that and we're delayed in doing that, is that something we're going to be held liable for? You know, is that something we're hurting our patients by not doing it in a timely fashion? It's going to help my patient. I want to make sure that's part of my checklist and it gets done in a timely fashion. So we said, let's look at that. We're not going to look at aspirin because that's a given. We're not looking at heparin. All those articles were below the low end point of our search. We searched from 2005 to 2017. By then, heparin and enoxaparin were a given. But do we have to add more agents? So let's talk about them. Let's look at the data. Because if this is something I have to do, this is I'm distracted from doing something else. And these things could potentially cause bleeding. First, the adenosine diphosphate-induced platelet aggregation inhibitors, affectionately known as the P2Y sub-12 inhibitors. There have been two class one studies we found. Both were randomized controlled trials. These are NSTEMIs that were going on to cardiac catheterization. The Prasagril was one. By giving it before angio or waiting until angio or after angio did not reduce the 30-day mace. And in fact, it increased bleeding episodes. There were more bleeding episodes. So you're not adding benefit. Do I want to be the one responsible for adding more bleeding without a lot of benefit? I'm going to leave that to the consultant. And the other one was by USIF, the class one randomized control trial in 2001, looking at Capritogil, which Alabaz used commonly. It didn't really reduce MI during the 12-month study. It went from 6.7 versus 5.2, and but the risk of bleeding did measurably increase, 8.5% versus 5.0. So there was a relative risk increase in bleeding. 
Okay, so that's the adenosine diphosphate-induced platelet aggregation inhibitors. What about the antiplatelet glycoprotein 2B3A inhibitors? That's a bixiximab and iptipitides or terofaban. The first study was a gusto trial, no difference in 30-day death or MI, myocardial infarction versus placebo when given this drug. There were three groups. Didn't get it, placebo, got it for 24 hours, got it for 48 hours. If they got it for 48 hours, there was a dose response curve in terms of negative outcome. There was increased mortality. And then for epiptibide and terofaban, this study, the QD timing trial, used both of these agents using early administration within less than an hour of being entered in the study versus deferral until the time of their catheterization did not confer benefit. So let's take our conclusion is let's take this off our plate. We are not responsible for that. If you want to give it, be our guest. You may increase your bleeding risk. If you don't give it, you're not threatening patient outcome or safety, and you're not a bad doctor. It lets you focus on what we think is more important, and you can put that on the consultant and do it based on what your local practice is. Uh, so that pretty much covers everything, right? Well, we didn't cover everything because we're taking more than two years. You know, the things <laughs> that we didn't study, I mean, everybody harped on, remember when Francis Fetzmeyer proposed, I mean, I remember sitting with him years ago saying, we got to look at deltas. You got to look at your CPK, MB delta. Is there a trend to increase or is there a trend that's flat or going down? We did not look at the delta factor. We did not look at duration of pain. And I know in my own practice, I do that a lot. Oh, you've had pain constant for 24 hours? I'm going to take my chances and just do one conventional troponin and have a discussion with you that I don't think you're having an ACS, an acute coronary syndrome, and that you're not at risk for 30 days. Am I taking a chance? Yes. And the problem with that is, was the pain stuttering? You know, was it constant? So we use time zero as the patient arrival, not the start of pain. And some of the newer guidelines that people are testing say that if the pain just started right before you got to the ED, you might even want to consider keeping the patient longer. Again, we can't comment on that. So you might use long duration of pain to send out people earlier and short duration of pain to keep people longer. I can't, we can't comment on that. And then finally, the big buzzword of 2018, or I should say even 2017, we're talking about that. Shared decision-making. Let's make this patient-centered care. Let's show them a chart. Let's show them a picture of 100 hearts or 100 people and show two ones with X's through them and say, you know, if I send you out, you could be one of these 98 happy faces or you could be one of these 2% X's. You know, are you willing to take that chance? And it's surprising a lot of patients are willing to take that chance. Mike, you pointed out, can you be sure you don't need to do stress testing on some of these people? If you have any doubt, include the patient in your decision and document it because you and the patient together are making the final decision, especially if they don't have good follow-up. You maybe want to keep them longer. But what we're hoping is that with these guidelines, you can do the right thing. In conclusion, we hope that it allows you that if you do have a patient that you're worried about chest pain and they're low risk for ACS and their troponin, their conventional troponin is negative at zero in three hours, that you know that if you want to safely discharge them, the risk is less than 2%. And that if you try to decrease this more, you may be slapped in the face with a lot of false positives that you're going to deal with. The second point, the conclusion we had was that if you are lucky enough to get high sensitivity of troponins, we think you can reduce that observation period from zero to three hours to zero to two hours. And low-risk cases that do rule out, we really don't think that the subsequent non-invasive testing adds a lot of value. And again, the last thing that we looked at, which is sort of an aside, and somebody who does rule in for NSTEMI, 
that further antiplatelet therapy beyond heparin, you can delay it. You're not going to be held accountable if you don't give it right away. And you, I don't think we sh you should be held accountable. But that's something to discuss with your own cardiology group or the hospital that you're going to transfer your patient to. Now, remember, this whole policy only deals mostly with patients that present with suspicion of ACS, usually with chest pain. It doesn't include all your atypical cases. So, you know, your elderly woman with dyspnea. So be careful. But a lot of those atypical cases already have a lot of coexisting risk factors, and hopefully you capture them in that way. And that's going to wrap up the discussion for today. There is so much in this policy. I highly recommend you reading it. We could not discuss every facet of it today, but hopefully this gave you an overview about how it was developed and the research that went into it. Thank you very much, Dr. Ross and Dr. Tomaszewski for being with us today. And all those listeners out there, thank you so much for giving us your time today. You can find the rest of our ASAP Equal series through the Academic Life in Emergency Medicine feed through Apple Podcasts. You can read our associated blog posts at www.aliem.com. You can find me on Twitter at jwoodsmd or via email at littlepatientsbigmedicine at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening.